Wait for Brenda to get back to turn the mic up. Let's uh, again just uh, turn to the Lord in prayer as we begin this morning and as we uh, look to his word that God would speak to us. Father, we do just uh, thank you that you are worthy of our love and affection and worship. Uh, Lord, we just can't really picture or grasp or imagine how deep and how great, how wide, how uh, just huge your love for us is. But we pray that, uh, especially during this uh, season when we look forward to the resurrection and celebrating all that we celebrate at Easter, uh, we would be really struck new with just how incredible your love for us truly is. And Lord, as we look to your word this morning, we ask that you would speak to us. Uh, Lord Jesus, you promised that you promised that you would reveal yourself to us and that you would continue to do so till the end of time. And so we ask that even this morning, you would reveal yourself to us and show us a, a, a deeper and clearer picture of who you are. Uh, Lord, we want to just give you praise and give you space this morning in our life to do your work in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning we are in John chapter 18, and as we uh, look forward to Easter, um, this morning we're going to look at Jesus' arrest and trial. Uh, Has anybody, I know there are some people here who have been on trial for things. Uh, If you're brave enough to so confess and admit that, raise your hand if you've been on trial, wrongly or not. Here we have a few. All right. Let's hear for those that have been on trial. Yeah. Uh, it would be actually would have been fun to interview those and ask them what it was like. If you're in trial, if you're if you're put on trial and you are innocent, what you want to come out of the trial is the truth, right? If you're put on trial and you're guilty, you're kind of hoping the truth doesn't come out, right? Uh, but any good trial, any good legal proceedings is is basically that it's a pursuit of truth. What really happened, I used to, when I lived back in the States, sometimes I'd watch, was it Judge Judy or something, some of these legal shows, you know, and it was just hilarious because these people, they all lie, they all lie, and they're all, you know, scamming something, and uh, these judges were really good at getting people to, you know, kind of get, come to grips with the truth. Well, as Jesus comes on trial, what should have happened has been a pursuit for truth, but as we, as the story unfolds, we see that that's not at all what happens. And that's not at all what they're interested in. So let's look through this story, John chapter 18, with Jesus' arrest. Let's begin reading at verse 1. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered the uh, the grove of olive trees. Judas the betrayer knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrive at the olive grove. It's interesting, after Jesus, the the Last Supper, uh, Jesus has been teaching them uh, this great uh, body of content we've been looking at for a long time. Chapters uh, 14, 15, 16, really starting with chapter 13, all the way to chapter 17. After all that's concluded, uh, they leave the upper room setting, they cross down, leave out the main gates of Jerusalem, cross the Kidron Valley, and uh, end up in this garden, uh, known in other translations as Gethsemane, 
which literally means olive press. And uh, the language used to describe this is probably more of an enclosed or semi-indoor setting. Because it talks about going in and coming out. So they're in a, a place where Jesus frequented often. And uh, troops were dispatched with the help of Judas as their guide. And what's interesting is uh, it's a, a contingent of both Jewish and Roman soldiers. And uh, in this chapter, we see that um, the world, and John really puts both the religious establishment as well as the Roman Empire together, and they're very much partners in arresting and prosecuting and ultimately executing Jesus. And it continues on, Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And as Jesus said, I am, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more he asked them, who are you looking for? Again they replied, Jesus of the Nazarene. And again he told them, I am. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? As we look at this story, I want to, and at Jesus' trial, I want to put forward that in this passage, John really describes and spells out why it is that Jesus had to die. Uh, and he gives us some amazing pictures of why Jesus' death was necessary. And in a sense, who was responsible for it? Uh, as we know, you know, we all know the outcome of the story. There's not a lot of suspense in it for us. We know how it ends. Um, there was no truth. Uh, they, they were not searching truth. And they wrongly condemned and accused Jesus. Uh, but the question I want to look at today is, why, why did Jesus die? Why is it that he had to go to the cross? And first of all, I'd like to propose that the first and most important reason is that God the Father ordained it. Uh, when they come and they stand before Jesus and Peter whacks off the ear of the servant, Jesus says, Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? It's interesting, as you look at this whole story, uh, from the very beginning, Jesus is in commanding control of everything that happens. Uh, we know that numerous times the officials had tried to arrest Jesus. We know that they had been plotting since, since chapter 11, uh, right after Jesus raised Lazarus, they had been seriously plotting and planning to apprehend and execute Jesus. Uh, Jesus had eluded and evaded them to this point. And Jesus, it says here, he says, Jesus knew everything that was about to happen. Okay, nothing caught him off guard or surprise. Uh, Jesus knew his hour had come. He'd said that over and over again. And it would have been very simple, very feasible, very possible for Jesus to evade this arrest. Uh, he had, for the whole period of the Passover week leading up to this time, had this habit or routine of hanging out in Jerusalem, teaching at the temple, uh, eating some kind of dinner, and then retreating to this 
Olive Garden, this enclosure, every day to pray, hang out with his disciples, fellowship. Uh, he didn't change his, his routine. He knew Judas would be bringing these soldiers here. And when the time came and the soldiers came, uh, Jesus didn't shirk back. He didn't say, you know, hey guys, run. He didn't try to sneak out the back door. It says that Jesus stepped forward to meet them. And really the picture of this whole chapter is a Jesus who is fully in control and who is willingly laying down his life, who knows what has to be done and who willingly accepts the hour that has come. And he meets his accusers. He puts himself in their hands. And he, of his own will and purpose, yields to to them. Uh, He's in complete control. And throughout this passage we see it. Uh, we'll look a little later as we look at him on trial before the high priest and before Pilate, that really Jesus has this amazing knack of turning the tables. Instead of being the one being interrogated, we find Jesus interrogating them. Jesus asking them questions and really putting them on, as it were, the witness stand. Jesus is in control. And here in this first scene, his control and power is, is portrayed by John by his simple uh, answer of who he is. They come with swords and torches and clubs ready to arrest him. And Jesus comes out and he says, Hey, guys, nice evening. What's up? Uh, who are you looking for? And they answer, We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. That's funny. They didn't recognize him. I don't know, you know how that worked. Maybe it was too dark. It says they had lights and lanterns. I don't know how they missed him. Maybe they just didn't study the, the wanted posters close enough. You know, uh, Jesus answers and he says, literally, he says, I am. Uh, this was a phrase that John had used throughout the book of, of John, throughout through this gospel, of Jesus declaring his, his deity. Uh, it's, it's a direct quote, direct phrase that uh, God used in Exodus when Moses was at the burning bush. And Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And God says, just tell them, I am sent you. And uh, when when they come looking for Jesus, Jesus answers with those same powerful words. And I don't know how he said it. I kind of exaggerated it when I read it. I don't know if he said, I am, or if he said, I am. I don't know. But it had that force. Uh, it had that effect. It bowled them back. And we don't know, uh, you know, there's a lot of commentary about why they fell backwards. Some people say that Jesus, you know, was such a strong uh, divine presence that his very presence bowled them over. Uh, others say that, uh, you know, it was just those words, that those words were, were borderline blasphemous. When they, well, they were blasphemous, uttered in that way. Uh, we don't really know. It doesn't go into detail. But the idea here is that whatever it was, there was an authority and command and presence in what Jesus said. So much so that when he said those words, they were taken back. And I can just picture this, this regiment of soldiers. By the way, it says that they were, there were a... A, a regiment, a um, contingent of Roman soldiers, a contingent, a full contingent was a thousand soldiers. Now, it's not likely that all 1,000 of them were dispatched for, for arresting, arresting one, you know, rabbi, <laughs> unarmed. Um, but it, it, it likely was a couple hundred, maybe as many as 600. Uh, they were dispatched not so much to, uh, because they thought Jesus was so dangerous, but because they were fearful of the crowd and the riot that could could be caused because of Jesus' arrest. So it was likely two, three hundred armed Roman soldiers, along with temple guards, maybe uh, 
30 or 40 temple guards as well, all armed, soldiers, trained. You know, these are police, okay? These are cops. And I can just picture as Jesus said that, and the, they kind of all step back and they start tripping each other over, and it's kind of a domino effect. You're just saying to see this wave from the beginning to the back, just present all this laying on the ground, right? And it's embarrassing. When you're a soldier and you're a tough guy, and some guy just says, I am, and it knocks you over, it's embarrassing. Okay, nobody, people are hoping, oh man, I hope the press isn't here, right? Uh, they give themselves, scramble back up to their feet, get back to their dignity and commanding position. And Jesus says, okay, who, who, who do you want? Who are you looking for? And they say it again, again, Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Jesus says, I am. Okay, this time they're braced. Okay, they got their legs, they, they didn't lock their knees this time. And uh, uh, he's the guy they're looking for. You just get this amazing picture of Jesus in control. Uh, Jesus uh, standing powerfully before them, uh, willingly confronting them, willingly coming before them uh, and giving himself to them. Uh, at that, uh, Peter, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, again, because he's in control, he says, look, you know, I'm the guy you want. Take me. Let the other guys go. Again, Jesus commanding the situation, protecting his disciples, making sure that it's only he who is taken. And then uh, the scene kind of closes with uh, Simon Peter. After Jesus has just secured his release, uh, Simon kind of jeopardizes the whole thing by whipping out his sword, running forward, and attacking one of the soldiers. Yeah, this is brilliant. I mean, this is just brilliant. I don't know what in the world Peter's thinking. There's two, three, four hundred armed Roman soldiers. I mean, these guys don't mess around. They would have had, like, armor. They would have had... These were ugly guys, okay? They were soldiers because they couldn't... You know, they were just mean, right? And uh, they were well-armed. And Peter's got the sword. The word they used there for sword would indicate not a large sword... A personal sword used for paring apples and things like that. You know, personal protection. Maybe it could be translated a dagger. All right? And to make matters worse, Peter really doesn't know how to use the thing. So we don't know what he's aiming for, but I'm guessing that, you know, attacking somebody's ear, it's not making a real bold statement. It's like, yeah, try and, try and get me now without an ear. Um, you know, I, I can just picture him going for the head and just missing all together. I don't know what he was after. Wax off the guy's ear. Uh, you can say a lot about Peter. He was very brave. He was really clueless as to what he was up against. I don't know if it was so dark he didn't realize that there was, maybe he just saw the first 10. But that I can take him, didn't actually see the other 390 behind them. I don't know. But uh, you think, what in the world is Peter doing? Well, he's courageous, he's bold, he's taking big steps. Uh, maybe what he perceived was he was. Um, in faith, fighting for God's kingdom. Maybe he saw this as, you know, if I step forward, you know, those angels will be right behind me. And I don't know. I don't know what Peter was thinking. But Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. Put your sword away. Put down the sword. Step back. And Jesus says, should I not drink the cup of suffering the Father has given me? Those are just amazing words. Jesus said, we're not going to fight right now because this is not something that is coming to us from, from the Jewish religious leaders. This is not something that is coming down to us because of the Roman army or Roman power. 
or the world. Jesus knows what this is about. He knows that ultimately this is unfolding at the will and hand of his own Father. Should I not drink this cup of suffering that the Father is giving me? Jesus knew full well what was about to come. He knew the full extent of what this suffering would would mean and would require of him. But amazingly, Jesus also understands that the cause of it, the real reason he is suffering, is because his own Father has ordained it, has declared it, has set it in motion. Uh, Of course, it doesn't mention it in this Gospel. We know in the other Gospels that Jesus had just been wrestling about this very issue in prayer. Father, not my will, but your be done. Uh, He prayed, please take this cup of suffering from me. But Jesus, as he wrestled, came to the point where he knew he must obey the Father's will. And he yielded himself, first and foremost, to the Father's will. So we know that Jesus died, and we need to be reminded that Jesus died for us for one simple reason, and that is that God so loved the world that he gave his Son. That that this was orchestrated ultimately by his Father. And as we read through the rest of this chapter, and as you look at all the other characters in the story who are making decisions, who are claiming some kind of power and authority, we have to be reminded that they are really all just tools and instruments in the hands of God. And that God is carrying out his perfect will and plan and purpose. And Jesus is yielding himself willingly into the Father's will to carry out God's purpose. Well, on a more human level, of course, other human proceedings had to take place. And so Jesus is arrested and it says that the soldiers and the commanding officers carried him off to the home of Annas, the high priest. Uh, And it says in verse 13 that, uh, or verse 14, that they took him to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at that time, Caiaphas was the one who had told the other Jewish leaders, it is better that one man should die for the people. Um, Jesus did die because the world hated him. Uh, Jesus did go to the cross because the world order had rejected him. Uh, It mentions here that Caiaphas had made this decree. As I shared, Caiaphas made that statement after Jesus had raised Lazarus. And the Jewish leaders were just furious at what, at what Jesus was doing. And they met and convened, and in that day, at that moment, they said, he must die. And Caiaphas was the one who had put forth the decree, said, look, uh, we're going to lose everything if we don't do something about Jesus. It is better that this one man die than that all the people die. Um, it's interesting, as I said, uh, when they went to arrest Jesus, the, the Jewish leaders... And the Roman army came together. Uh, there were not two more, more hated enemies in these groups. Okay? The Jewish people, and especially the Jewish religious leaders, hated the Romans. Uh, about 400 years before this, 300 and some years before this, uh, one of the Roman conquerors had gone in and actually desecrated the temple. Had gone inside the temple had uh, 
sacrificed a pig in the Holy of Holies. I mean, it doesn't, if you're a Jew, it doesn't get worse than that, all right? And the Jews hated the Romans for it. Since that time, the Romans had exerted power and authority over Israel, and they resented it deeply. In fact, Annas was high priest when, when Jesus was born. He was named high priest in 6 B.C., about the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, when Herod the Great died, not long after Jesus' birth, a new governor was named. That governor deposed Annas and put in his own high priest. That's why in this passage it's a bit confusing where there's Annas the high priest and Caiaphas the high priest. One was named high priest by the Jews. The other was set in that position by the Roman Empire. The Jews hated that control over them. These guys were terrible enemies. But when it came to killing Jesus... They're really on the same side. And John beautifully portrays that the world represents all those who reject Jesus. Whether they be religious or political, they're all on the same side. And you see them working together to convict Jesus. And you see this agenda of the, world, of, of the religious order. What was their agenda? Well, they made it pretty clear. Way back in chapter 11, their plan was to kill Jesus. Period. Okay? Okay. Uh, they pretend a trial, but it's only to go through the motions because it's what you have to do before you kill somebody. But they had already made up their mind. So we jump down to chapter uh, verse, uh, verse 19. Uh, before Jesus is brought in before Annas and he questions him. Uh, this, by the way, is probably not a legal trial. The legal trial would have to take place later with Caiaphas. And John kind of skips that part. Uh, the other Gospels recorded. But in this Inquisition, uh, Annas asked some questions. He says, uh, he began asking about his followers and about Jesus' teaching. And Jesus answers, Everyone knows what I teach. I have preached regularly in the synagogues and in the temple where the people gather. I have not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me they know what I said. Okay, does this sound like a guy who's cowering in fear? <laughs> it's amazing the commanding authority Jesus has here. He's standing before uh, arguably the most powerful man in Israel. Uh, while Annas had been deposed as high priest, he later developed a reputation as kind of a religious godfather. Uh, there were five of his sons who were high priests during the time he was still alive, and now his son-in-law was high priest. And he pulled the strings of all of them. He's a powerful man. He was also a very horrible, wicked, and evil man. In fact, the high priests were so wicked and horrible that in 70 AD, when uh, Jerusalem fell to the Romans, the Jewish people actually killed the high priest because they really believed that a lot of what came upon Jerusalem was because these guys were so wicked. Um, Jesus is not intimidated by these guys. Uh, what he's saying here, he says, everyone knows what I'm teaching. I, I've been out in the square publicly teaching. What he's saying is this. He's saying, if you want to know the truth, go ask people. Even more importantly, Jesus may have been saying this. It was the, the job of the priests, especially the high priests, to decide what teachers and what, what, what people were following the law. Those that were upholding truth and living by the word. I think Jesus is saying this. Look, it was your job 
to be checking on me and finding out what I was teaching three years ago. Where were you? Why weren't you checking that? Every day I taught in this very temple. The, the home of Annas, the home of Caiaphas, were very near uh, the temple courtyard, the temple complex. I think Jesus is saying, look, you should have been out there every day listening. I was proclaiming the truth. I was giving my message. You should know what I was teaching. Why don't you? It's your job. Why don't you know what I was saying? Another part that Jesus was uh, really defending himself, it was not permissible for a witness to convict himself. Uh, by Jewish law, by, by, by synagogue law, uh, you had to bring witnesses against somebody and they had to declare the truth about them. Jesus is, is saying also, where are your witnesses? You're putting me on trial. Where are those who would bring accusation against me? If you, as you should be, are pursuing truth, where's your witnesses? Where's those who can construct a case to discover the truth? But of course, that wasn't their agenda or their purpose. Uh, Jesus says flat out, why are you asking me these questions? Uh, Jesus accuses the high priest. You know, why are you asking me this? It should be the other way around. Right? You should know the truth. Well, at this, one of the temple guards standing nearby slaps Jesus because he feels that Jesus is being very disrespectful. And Jesus replies again. He said, if I have said anything wrong, either now or in all the days I was teaching in the temple, it is your job to prove it. Where are the witnesses? Bring those against me who can bring legitimate accusation. He says, it's your job to prove it, but if I'm speaking the truth... Why are you beating me? Uh, Jesus completely turns the table. And he begins to accuse the high priest. He says, you're not pursuing the truth. If you want to know the truth, it's more than available. But the reality is, I'm on trial because you don't want to know the truth. Uh, Jesus had to die because the religious order of the world cannot discover truth. Bottom line. All the religions of the world could potentially... Okay, hear hear this. Okay, this will kind of wake you up. All the religions of the world could potentially lead to God if they all sought the truth. But even the perfect... you know, Well, I don't know if it's the perfect religion. Even God's own invented religion, Judaism, could not come to a place of knowing the truth. Uh... If you think you can come to know God and know His will and know His purpose through religion, Jesus makes it clear here that you cannot. Religion is not capable of pursuing truth. They had too much of their own agenda. They were far too selfish to really seek the truth. Uh, They were far too wicked and corrupt to be able to grasp the truth. And so Jesus had to die... Because religion is incapable of comprehending the truth. It can't come through that. If it couldn't come through Judaism, there isn't a religion in the world today that can lead people to truth. You know, God, Judaism was God's own religion. Of course, everybody thinks their religion is God's religion, but we'll, we'll take it as an assumption that God created Judaism. It was inadequate to bring people to the truth. His own religious leaders couldn't see him, couldn't grasp him. 
Well, likewise, the political order uh, was left grappling for truth. Uh, from here, it says in verse 28 that Jesus goes before Caiaphas. Uh, nothing is told of that trial. It would have taken place in the early hours of the morning and apparently finished around 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning. At that time, he was taken to the quarters or the uh, temporary offices of Pilate. Pilate did not live in Jerusalem. He lived uh, in Galilee. But he uh, came along with this large contingent of troops to Jerusalem during the Passover because it was a time when up to a million people would come to Jerusalem. And it was a time that made politicians very nervous. All right? Now, we know what happens when demonstrators get together, okay? We know how they can, like, close airports, right? You get enough people together, they can do all, cause all kinds of troubles. And Pilate did not want the airport getting closed during Passover. Really wrecked tourism, right? So he would show up with this big contingent of soldiers to keep order, to make sure protests and demonstrations and riots... Uh, rebellions, you know, civil wars, political takeovers were kind of kept at a minimum, right? So they take Jesus to Pilate's temporary headquarters um, very early in the morning. Now, this is not unusual. Now, it was unusual and actually illegal for Jews to have a trial during the middle of the night, very, um, very much out of protocol. They were, they were in a hurry, Okay, bottom line is they didn't want to mess up their Passover dinner. Uh, these, these Jewish leaders uh, were trying to expedite this before Passover. They didn't want to wreck their holiday. So they had this trial in the middle of the night. They took their case to Pilate first thing in the morning. Interestingly, it was normal business for uh, Roman officials to have office between about 5 in the morning and 10 in the morning. That was kind of their working hours. I don't know why, but that's just the way they did it. So it would have been very normal for them to show up at Pilate's office 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning, handing Jesus over to him. Now, uh, as you read through this account, it's a little puzzling. It says, so Pilate, the governor, went out to them. They wouldn't go in because it was Passover. They didn't want to defile themselves. And he asked them, what is your charge against this man? Because that was how he would have formally began the trial. What's your formal complaint or charge against this man? Now, the religious leaders reply, well, we wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal. That's an interesting response, okay? And uh, there, there has to be more to this story than what John recorded, and certainly there was. In order for the Jews to get a contingent of Roman soldiers to accompany them for Jesus' arrest, they had already had to put forward some kind of formal charge or complaint against Jesus. Pilate already knew what was going on. Okay, this wasn't the first time he had been brought this case. And uh, very likely the Jews had assumed that because Pilate had given the soldiers that they were, that he was with them. All right? So they were, this is how they pictured this would work. Okay? They thought, well, we arrest him, we take him, you just say, okay, kill him, and we'll take him and have him executed. But, of course, it's not the job of government to do that. It's the job of government to bring justice, right? Or at least the appearance of justice. And Pilate, uh, wicked as he was and fickle as he was, was a due representative of Rome. 
is okay, hold on, boys, not so fast. We, we need to have a real trial here. At this, the Jews get f- frustrated. And uh, at this, we see Pilate's heart. Now, was Pilate really a guy that was that concerned about justice? Not in the least. Not in the least. But he was concerned about two things. One, keeping his job, which meant keeping people at peace, right? Keeping order. If things go bad in Jerusalem, he can lose his job or his life. Uh, So he wants to keep people happy, keep the crowds uh, at bay. Second thing, though, is he wants to make it very clear to everybody that he's, he's in control. Pilate could have got a job at immigration, okay? He's one of those people, one of those people who makes your life miserable just to know that you know that they're in control. You know these people? Okay, some of you haven't spent enough time in immigration. You really need to work on that. Uh, go into government offices and these people, I mean, it's these people. They want you to know that they are in control. And they're going to make you jump through every hoop imaginable to make sure you know that they're in charge. That's Pilate. And he says, you know, look, guys, we're not going to play this game your way. We're going to play it my way. We're going to have a trial. So he takes Jesus into uh, inside and he interrogates Jesus. And uh, apparently the charge that had been brought is that Jesus was claiming to be a king which was treason against the Roman Empire, absolutely punishable by death. That was the charge that they had drummed up against Jesus. So Pilate asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, well, is that your question or did somebody put you up to it? I love Jesus. I mean, he's just not, you're like, he's not, he's not intimidated by Pilate either. He goes, well, is this something you want to know? Is this a per- are you seeking truth here? Or are you just passing rumors? Okay. Well, at this, Pilate just goes ballistic. He goes up. I, and I'm not a good enough actor, so I can't get as dramatic as he was. But he starts ranting and raving. Am I a Jew? What's wrong with you? Pilate just goes off. He's furious. He says, what have you done? What is with you? Who are you? And Jesus uh, answers back, my kingdom is not, of this, is not an earthly kingdom. If it were an earthly kingdom, my followers would have fought to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. He says, look, we're not fighting anybody. Uh, you know, there was the one, one attack. I stopped it. That was it. We're not out to overthrow Rome. I'm not starting an insurrection. So Pilate says, so you are a king. Jesus said, I am a king, as you say. But actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. Jesus says, look, I... I came as king of a kingdom, but my kingdom is a kingdom of truth. It's not of this world. And then he says this. He says to Pilate, let me paraphrase this. He says, you know, if you were really looking for the truth, you would understand what I'm saying. You don't understand what I'm saying. You don't love the truth. You're an idiot. (laughs) Polite way, kind of roundabout way of saying it. He says, if you were searching truth, you would know who I am, and you would understand what I'm saying. Because you don't really want to know the truth, you're clueless. 
Well, I don't know if Pilate didn't get the gist of what Jesus was saying or he just let it slide by him. But he replies back quickly and tertly, what is the truth? What is truth? I'm not interested in truth. Maybe truth can't be found. A lot of the philosophers of their day believed that it was impossible to know the truth. You see, the political order is not any more interested in knowing the truth than than the religious order. A lot of people think that that government can save us. Uh, I don't know why they would think that. Because it's pretty obvious it's not working, right? That's why we keep having new governments and change of governments, and we want new governments, and we have coups, and we have, you know, in Thailand, how many prime ministers, and, you know, now they want another one. Government doesn't work. Government cannot solve our problems. Government cannot be the answer to our greatest questions. And ultimately, the world order cannot communicate or help us discover truth. Jesus says, my kingdom is all about truth. It is all about the truth of who God is and what he has done. It is all about the truth about you and who you are and what you have done. But Pilate wants no part of that. So Jesus had to die because this world, both the religious and the political, the world order at every front, rejects the truth, cannot discover the truth about God on its own. Well, we skipped over Peter, and John does a brilliant job of weaving Peter into the story. And I'm not as good as John. I'm not as... He was, does it in a very dramatic way. I tried to think, how can I do this dramatically? I couldn't figure it out. And so I pulled Peter out separately, and I want to talk about him last. Because he really portrays the third reason why it was necessary for Jesus to die. Um, we, we looked at the story of Jesus cutting off Malchus's ear. Um, as we said, Peter, in that act, shows great, if nothing else, he shows great devo- devotion and loyalty to Jesus. If we can say one thing about Peter, it would be that Peter was probably one of the most dedicated followers of Jesus. Uh, Jesus had, uh, uh, Peter had said earlier, look, Jesus, I will, I will go to death for you. And I believe that when Peter said that, he meant it absolutely. If you were to ask Jesus, what's, uh, ask Jesus, ask Peter, if you were to ask Peter, what's the most important thing in your life? Peter would have said Jesus. I would give my life for Jesus. I am dedicated to Jesus. I am devoted to his cause. I am willing to lay down my life for Jesus. Right? Uh, in this story and in this passage, Peter is really the good guy, even though he's a little confused about taking on the whole Roman army. He's a good guy whose heart is in the right place and represents the truest, purest follower of Jesus. The ultimate sold-out committed, surrendered follower of Jesus, right? But in this story, this sold-out, committed, devoted, loyal, loving follower of Jesus fails terribly. First, he fails with the sword thing, okay? Um, Now, Jesus, in this gospel, is not recorded rebuking him. In the other gospels, he does. And uh, really, Peter is like, 
as loyal and dedicated and stupid as he is, he is missing the point. He is just missing the whole point. And, and it becomes very clear that Peter, after all this, after this final great teaching that, that he's just heard unfolded and that we spent the last three months talking about, Peter did not get it. And the reality is that Peter cannot grasp the truth. Peter cannot understand God's will and purpose. And Jesus has been saying it over and over again. I have to die. I must go to the cross. I must surrender to the Father's will, which is that I would receive glory, bring glory to the Father through my death. Jesus has been saying it over and over again. At one point they'd even said, oh yeah, now we get it. But they really didn't get it. Peter could not grasp the truth. If Peter could not grasp the truth, who could? Well, the reality is no one can. If Peter, as loyal, committed, and dedicated as he is, if he cannot grasp who Jesus is and come to grips with God's will, no one can. That's why Jesus had to die. Until Jesus went to the cross, no one would really grasp who God is. Over and over, Jesus has been saying, I came to reveal the Father to you. I have come to make clear and plain to you who the Father is. And Jesus would make that declaration ultimately and finally on the cross. This is your God. I am revealing to you through my death, through my suffering, the heart of the Father for you. Only then, only after the cross and the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, would the disciples finally get it? You know, maybe uh, this should be encouraging for you and I. A lot of times I don't get it. A lot of times I read the Bible, I don't get it. A lot of times there's things in the Scripture I don't get. God does things, I don't get it. I get it when things go well in my life, when things go bad, I don't get it, right? I don't understand. Uh, there's encouragement here that Peter didn't get it either. But God's purpose is that through his death, we would begin to understand. The light would dawn in our hearts and minds. And we would come to know the truth. It goes from there, it goes from kind of bad to worse for Peter. As we know, Peter followed Jesus along with another disciple, probably John, to the house of Annas, the high priest. John has connections, is able to, is able to get in, but Peter is stopped at the door by a woman who's uh, a gate guard. <laughs> And she says, sorry, you can't come in. And this other disciple, John, whoever it is, pulls some strings and gets Peter in the courtyard. And the woman at the gate says, um, you're, you're, you're not one of those man, that man's disciples, are you? And Peter answers, no, I am not. No, I am not. Um, Peter moves in. There's a fire burning. It's night. It's cold. They're warming themselves around the fire. Another servant woman comes along and says, you're not one of his disciples, are you? Again, Peter says, no, I'm not. Finally, one of the relatives of Malchus, the guy whose ear he cut off, says, I, you were there, I saw you. You're the guy with the knife and the bad aim. <laughs> I know you. Peter flatly denies it. I am not one of his disciples. 
flat out denies that he even knows Jesus. He really, this is not a true word, but I, I just made it up. He undisciples himself. Okay, he was a follower. He now becomes a not follower. This guy who had been sold out totally now withdraws himself as a follower of Jesus. He says, I'm not only not following him, I don't even know him. He's not even an acquaintance. Total failure. We cannot follow Jesus apart from the cross. Jesus had to die on the cross because even his most loyal servants could not do it in their own strength. When you look at back through the Old Testament, Peter wasn't the only one. God's best servants in the Old Testament all failed. Moses. I mean, Moses wrote the law. Moses was a dedicated, all-out follower of God. But there was that day when he lost his temper and he struck the rock the wrong way, didn't follow God's instructions, and he disqualified himself. David, a man after God's own heart, wrote most of the Psalms, or many of the Psalms, a man who loved God deeply, but he fell into sin with Bathsheba and had her husband killed. Brought great disgrace on himself and his family. His son Solomon, a man who God delighted in, who God was so impressed with because of his devotion, that God gave him wisdom and incredible success. But toward the end of his life, he married foreign wives and broke God's law and began worshiping their gods. No one can follow God apart from the work of the cross. So the, the final statement for us is, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, he died because even his most loyal followers cannot do this apart from the cross. Apart from the cross, there is nothing. We cannot know the truth. We cannot follow him. There is nothing in us of ourselves that's good enough, smart enough, determined enough, diligent enough, gifted enough that can do this on our own. It's only made possible through the cross. Uh, we're not of the world. We're probably not of the screwed up religious order, hopefully. <laughs> uh, although the church has created its own screwed up religious order. Hopefully we're serious, committed disciples of Christ who want to know and love and follow Him. But the great message of the Gospel is that that's possible. And it is possible. But it's only possible because Jesus laid down His life to break the power of sin and death and darkness, the selfishness and pride in our life. That by His strength and by His life, we could be true, committed followers of Him. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, come before you this morning so incredibly thankful and grateful for your love for us. That God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. That you looked down upon this world and you understood the hopelessness of, of religion, the hopelessness of the world system, the hopelessness of its leaders, 
and even the hopeful, pitif- hopeless, pitiful state of your most devoted followers who are just absolutely incapable of following through with our promises in our own strength. You had to die. You had to give your life to break the power of sin that has captured us. And Lord, we just thank you so much that you did indeed shed your blood. Lord Jesus, that you laid down your life willingly and gladly received the cup of suffering that your own precious Father handed you to show your love for us. Lord God, may we walk in the power of the blood and may we lay aside our